0: Matthew is finally getting at that age where he sort of becomes a mirror for Layla and me. Meaning that he's beginning to mimic us. Sometimes he'll say words and we're we'll wonder who taught you that? Like, I've never tried to teach you that until we realize I say that a lot, right? Sometimes even he'll develop now little mannerisms and little ticks. I'm wondering, why are you doing that with your jaw? Why are you doing that with your hands? And I was, it's because I do that with my hands, right? He is mimicking us. And it's just a reminder of how God designed children to do that. We've all done that. We learn from our parents. We model them. We mimic them. This is actually the reason why in English we have this expression. You've probably heard it before. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Right? And this expression is just trying to recognize this reality that the fruit of our loins doesn't go very far from us. It, it, it looks like us. It stays near to us. That in short, sons imitate and act like their fathers. And this is not just true in the biological world. It's actually true spiritually as well. Human beings will always imitate their spiritual fathers also. And today's passage will show Jesus relying on this truth, utilizing this spiritual truth to try and get some false converts to take a more honest look at their spiritual condition. Would you open your Bibles to John chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. John chapter 8, verses 31 through 47. When you're there, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. John chapter 8, verses 31 through 47. Thus saith the Lord. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, And Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Well, last week our text ended with after Jesus in his debate with the Pharisees, The text tells us that some of the people listening came to believe him. But Jesus knows their faith is not a true saving faith. We've seen this countless times at this point throughout the Gospel of John people putting a temporary artificial faith in Jesus, not a true lasting saving faith. And so he turns to these believers, you can put that in quotes, these false converts, and he tries to call them to an abiding faith, a true living faith. But his attempt does not go over well. They don't appreciate his implication that their faith is somehow defective. Right? I, it was a long passage, so let's go back and reread that right at the beginning. Begin in verse 31 with me. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So Jesus wants these believers to abide in him. And if they do that, then they will be set free. Jesus is, by implication, Jesus is now describing the state of unbelief as a state of slavery. If you need to be set free, what's the implication of that? You're a slave. You're enslaved. Every human person is born spiritually enslaved to sin. This is what we call the doctrine of original sin. The human condition has been so corrupted by sin that we all now inherit from our parents a broken and diseased nature. And this all comes ultimately from Adam. And so Jesus is teaching us here the truth that you are not sinners because you sin. You sin because you're sinners. You are enslaved to sin and that's why you obey it. Your obedience to it doesn't make you a slave. You're already a slave and that's why you obey it. Because we have all lived lives practicing sin, living in sin. It is proof that sin is our master. That we are naturally enslaved to sin. Our nature is totally depraved and corrupt. And this is, by the way, just as an important side note. This is why, as Reformed theologians, we often get accused of denying free will. Now, we certainly don't deny that every person is accountable to God for their sin. We affirm that. If that's what you mean by free will, then we do believe in free will. But admittedly, the term is, we think, a little misleading. Because we object to the term free will in a different sense. And we object to it because of what Jesus is teaching here. We are not born in freedom. We're born in the opposite of freedom, slavery. So we don't like to talk about man's will as a free will. We prefer the the language that Martin Luther used when he wrote his most famous book, The Bondage of the Will. Our will is in bondage. Our will is enslaved. We are not free. We live out our sin and it proves that we are enslaved to sin. Now there is some good news from this, the passage Insinuates, And the good news is that this is the very reason why we have to believe that salvation is a work of God. When you, be, when you start with the doctrine of original sin, the only thing that comes afterward in terms of salvation is grace. Because you've already started with the position that I'm past saving myself. That ship has sailed. And now the only way we can possibly be saved is if someone from the outside sets us free. I think Jesus hints at that very thing in this text. He does it twice, but I want to focus on the really explicit one. The very last verse of the text. Look at verse 47. Jesus is ultimately explaining why these people are not hearing him and believing him. He says in verse 47, Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. I maintain that far too many Christians in their personal theology, they have this verse entirely backward. They reverse the order of this birth. You see, they want to maintain that the reason I'm not of God is because I have not heard Him or believed in Him. Now, there is some truth to that. But we have to make room in our theology for what Christ is actually saying here, which is the inverse. It's not as you're not of God because you don't hear Him. Jesus says it's the other way around. You don't hear Him. Because you're not of God. So you do not make yourself of God by hearing. You can't make yourself anything. You're a slave. God has to make you of God before you can hear. Salvation is a gracious work of God. You are a passive recipient. You merely are acted upon when you are saved. You have to be of God in order to truly hear Christ. And so that's why we understand this term here as, as re- referring not so much to salvation being of God. Salvation comes after you hear Christ. But in terms of election, those whom God has not elected, those whom the Spirit has passed over and left in their free sin, they are not of God and they cannot hear Jesus because of their state and their condition. In other words, our corrupt nature assures us that we will never hear Christ. We will never believe in Christ unless an unmerited work of God comes in and changes us, making us able to hear. We call this regeneration. Because in our natural condition, we are slaves without ears to hear And so when Jesus, to take us back on track here, when Jesus tells these believers, abide in my word and then I will set you free, they they hear that implication. They say, wait a minute, this guy's calling us a slave. I thought I was already free and Jesus is calling me a slave. And so they object to this. They object to this on the basis that they belong to Abraham. Right? What did they say? Read with me again, verse 33. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Most likely what this verse tells us is that they understand Jesus is speaking spiritually. Because I think they probably understand that the descendants of Abraham have in fact been enslaved many, many times in the past. Right? And as a matter of fact, they were currently in a kind of quasi-slavery state in their current condition because they were were under Roman occupation. And so they're probably not thinking physically here. They probably understand we've been enslaved many times. The children of Abraham have been enslaved. They, They hear Jesus spiritually. And they're saying on a spiritual level, we're the descendants of Abraham and we have never been slaves. Now... Why does being a descendant of Abraham matter to them? Where is this argument coming from? I thought maybe it would be a good idea to, in some degree, take a break from our sermon text and just do a little bit of review. Let's just do a little bit of review. What is the significance of Abraham and his descendants and his covenant? And this will really help us make sense of the passage. So I want to take us back in time to a man, not yet called Abraham, but called Abram. Abram was graciously chosen by God to be the father and the mediator, if you will, the representative of one of the Bible's most important covenants which we call the Abrahamic covenant. Now, to some degree, it's hard to like point to one single passage to find the covenant because God kind of makes progressive promises to Abraham over time. For example, in Genesis 12, he tells Abram, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So one part of the Abrahamic covenant is that Abraham will be blessed and that through his descendant, through his progeny, the whole world will be blessed. The whole world is going to be graciously blessed by God through the progeny of Abraham. So you see, right from the get-go, we have a significance on his descendant. He tells them again a couple chapters later in Genesis 15. And he brought Abram outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. So now Abram is not only being promised an offspring that will bless the world. He's promised a huge offspring, an uncountable offspring, more than the stars. But yet again, what are we seeing? What's the theme here? There's a huge focus in the Abrahamic covenant on his offspring. And then it's in Genesis 17 where the covenant is finally formally ratified. So I'm just going to have you turn there. Let's just read it together. Um, I I put Genesis 17, 1 through 14, but we probably won't need to read that long into the circumcision part. Um, Just begin in verse 14, and I'll tell you when to stop. Genesis 17. Here is sort of the final aspect of the Abrahamic covenant and its formal ratification, if you will. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. We'll stop there. You can go ahead and turn back now to John chapter 8. I hope you kept your marker there. I forgot to remind you. But let's continue to do some review. So Abram's name is changed to Abraham because that word Abraham in Hebrew literally means father of many. So his name is changed to remember the key part of the covenant. That he is going to have many descendants. That he will bless the world. He will be the father of many nations and many kings and many people. And God will be not just his God, but as an everlasting covenant will be the God to his descendants. So you see how important it is to be a descendant of Abraham. Because that's who God belongs to. If you're outside of Abraham, God is not your God. God hasn't promised to be the God to the Egyptians. He hasn't promised to be the God to the Canaanites. He has promised to be God to Abraham and his children as an everlasting covenant. And so you see now, as we go back to John 8, why the Jews are a little confused here. The descendants of Abraham are standing in front of the Jewish Messiah who's telling them, God is not your God. You're slaves to sin. And they're saying, what are you talking about? We're the descendants of Abraham. We've never been slaves. God has always been our God. Ever since Abraham, God has been our God. How could Jesus possibly imply that they are not descendants of Abraham? And what gets even more confusing is Jesus actually tells them in the text that you, I know you're descendants of Abraham, yet you're not. Right? Begin in verse 35 with me. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and yet you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him Abraham is our father And Jesus said to them If you were Abraham's children You would be doing the works Abraham did But now you seek to kill me A man who has told you the truth That I heard from God This is not what Abraham did So at the beginning of that passage Jesus says I know that you're sons of Abraham I know that And then he immediately says But by the way No you're not No you're not You have a different father So is Jesus just a walking contradiction here? What do we make sense? Why why is Jesus saying you are, but you're not? Well, this is because Jesus is beginning at this point in time to reveal to us a very important truth about the Abrahamic covenant, one that his apostles went along to make very, very clear, which is that the Abrahamic covenant has always been and always will be with Abraham's spiritual seed. It has never, ever been about his physical seed. It has always been about his spiritual seed. That's how Jesus can say, yeah, biologically you're descendants of Abraham, but you're not. You're not true descendants of Abraham. If you want someone to elucidate this doctrine for you, to make it very, very clear, the key person to go to is the Apostle Paul. Which makes sense, because the Apostle Paul was the the apostle specifically called to the Gentile world. And so you would think that this would be an important message to him, right? Because what was the understanding of Genesis 17 up to this time? If you're not Jewish, you can't be saved. What's the point of going out to the Gentiles? They're not children of Abraham. So it was very important for Paul to show how you can be biologically foreign to Abraham, but spiritually one of his children. And that's why the Apostle Paul went to great lengths to say things, for example, like in Romans 2, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So what's Paul saying? You do have to be Jewish to be saved. You do have to be a son of Abraham to be saved. But those are spiritual realities, not biological ones. You need to become a spiritual Jew, a spiritual Israelite. You need a spiritual circumcision. That's what the covenant is about. He makes this even more clear in Romans 9. I want you to see this in your own Bible. So again, keep your marker in John, but turn to Romans chapter 9. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Just a couple books over. Romans chapter 9. Basically, the whole book of Romans is about how Gentiles relate to the Jewish salvation. And how so many Jews have been excluded from the Jewish salvation. Romans chapter 9. Begin in verse 6 with me. This is right after Paul has just lamented how many biological descendants of Abraham, how many physical Israelites are not saved. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Let's stop there. Paul could not be more clear that being a part of Israel isn't about your biology. You can be a physical descendant of Abraham and not be of Israel. So Paul says in Romans chapter 9, it is those of the promise who are counted as offspring, not the physical descendants. And here's what Paul does that's so amazing. He goes on to prove it. In other words, Paul doesn't, certainly this truth is magnified in the New Testament, but he thinks this truth exists in the Old Testament. And so he goes to prove it. And so he gives a couple of examples. If being saved is all about being a physical descendant of Abraham, then you know who should definitely be part of the Abrahamic covenant? Is a young man named Ishmael. Abraham's firstborn son. He's got more blood running through. He's got more Abrahamic blood running through him than any person Jesus is talking to in John chapter 8. And yet all of the Jews know he has never been counted in the Abrahamic covenant. God said, no, 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 not Ishmael, Isaac. So blood has never saved them right from the get-go. But then Paul knows, well, they might be able to get around this because the thing with Ishmael was kind of iffy, right? God promised him through his wife and Abraham got Uh, excited and so he had a son with his concubine so it's easy to say well Ishmael doesn't count because you, you didn't obey me so he says well let me give you another example then one you can't get around Jacob and Esau Jacob, by the way, whose name is changed to Israel. That's why we call them Israelites is because they are descendants of Jacob. They can't be a descendant of Ishmael, who, by the way, did go on to become the father of a nation. So there are millions of people with Abrahamic blood in their veins who have never been part of the Abrahamic promise. And so now we turn to Jacob, to Israel himself. And isn't it interesting? He had a twin brother. They're basically the same person. They've got the same mom, the same dad, and the same DNA. They're the same person. And yet, before they were even born, God said, not Esau. So you can't say, well, Esau was cut out because of his bad works. Before they were born, and did anything good or bad. Not Esau. You can't say, well, because his mom was, was a concubine. Nope, nope, same parents. From the very get-go, God has been sovereignly electing who belongs and who doesn't. Your bloodline has never saved you, and it won't save you today. That's Paul's point. And this is the exact same point that Jesus is trying to make in John 8. He's, in other words, trying to show people what Paul says in Galatians 3. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul quotes the Abrahamic covenant and says, see how it prophesied this? The Gentiles have promised to be blessed, have promised to be saved, and you think, how can the Gentiles be saved? They're not sons of Abraham. And Paul's saying, because from the very get-go, it was never about the blood. It's always been about sharing in Abraham's faith. And these Jews in John 8, they don't share in his faith, and that means they are not Sons of Abraham I don't care who their granddaddy is so the question is begged then whose sons are they if they're not sons of Abraham who do they belong to look at verse 44 John chapter 8 back in John chapter 8 look at verse 44 Jesus has been implying you do the works of your father it's not God it's not Abraham but your father who is their father well he's going to tell him. verse 44 You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Can you imagine how provocative this statement would have been? Here Jesus is standing in front of the descendants of Abraham, the covenant people of God, and calling them spawns of Satan. Abraham's not your father, God is not your father, the devil is your father. Now, this actually is not as harsh or radical or provocative as you might think. The very first time the gospel was ever preached in the world, it was preached in these categories. The sons of God versus the sons of the devil. Genesis 3, God says this to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Satan has offspring. Satan has children. And the gospel first proclaimed was essentially proclaimed as a battle between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of Satan. Unbelievers have always been children of the devil. This isn't anything new. Jesus is just a good old-fashioned Old Testament Jew here. You're not of God. That means what? You are the offspring of the serpent. You are the offspring of the devil. And so perhaps then it would be helpful with the little time we have left to perform somewhat of a spiritual DNA test. Think of uh, John chapter 8 as sort of your own personal spiritual ancestry DNA. Who's your father? Who do you belong to? Are you blessed along with Abraham? Are you a son of God? Or are you of your father the devil? I would say the purpose that this text has for us is to teach us how to identify that. Am I in the Abrahamic covenant or not? Is God my God or is Satan my God? And the way you identify those who are children of God, Jesus really gives us too, this is sort of the the heart of the passage here, those who abide in and obey Christ, that says as should be are, are children of God and counted as Abraham's descendants. What is is this passage about? If your neighbor to ask you, what did you learn in church today? This is what the passage is about. This is what it's trying to teach us. Those who abide in and obey Christ are children of God and counted as Abraham's descendants. If you want to be a child of Abraham, if you want to be a son of God, you need to abide in and obey Christ. So let's break those two things down just so you believe me. I'm not pulling this out of thin air. The first mark, the first evidence that God is your father, that Abraham is your father, is that you abide in Christ. And that begins with faith. You must believe in Christ. So look at verse 36 with me. Jesus tells us in verse 36, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. If you're a child of God, then that means you believe in Jesus. Because He alone has the power, has the key to free you from your enslavement. Outside of Christ, there's no key. There's no power to be free, so you are left a slave. So that means that without Jesus, who cancels your guilt and gives you a spirit to transform your heart and make you into a son of God, without Jesus, you're left a slave. You have to have Christ to be a son of God and a son of Abraham. And since we access Christ by faith, that's how you get Christ's faith, we can say God's children, the first mark of a child of God is they believe in Jesus. And Jesus, by the way, I love what he does in this, verse, this passage. He actually explains the logic of this. Look at verse 40, 42 with me. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, And I am here. I came not of my own accord, but him who sent me. So Jesus, this is brilliant here. Jesus is saying, if I came from God, like if I'm here because God is the one who sent me, God is the one who said, hey, you're my son, you go here and you hate Jesus. How can you possibly love God? You're literally hating the thing that God loved and the thing that God chose. So you're obviously not on the same page with God if you're against the very person he sent for you. Jesus and the Father, by virtue of his eternal generation, have the exact same nature. So if you look at Jesus and say, I want nothing to do that, you are simultaneously looking at God and saying, I want nothing to do with that. Because they have the same nature and Jesus was sent by God. So Jesus is saying it is quite literally impossible to reject him and still have the Father. The Father cannot be your Father without the Son. If you love God, you will love the Son. And the Son will set you free. So you need to believe in Jesus. But what's important is Jesus doesn't actually say that in this text. He doesn't use the word believe. He uses the word abide. And that's why faith, in a sense, is not actually what we're going for, but an abiding, a true perpetual and living faith, right? That's how he begins. Look at verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Jesus is trying to teach them that their faith won't persevere and it won't save. True faith perseveres. Temporary discipleship is not genuine discipleship. In other words, I like the way R.C. Sproul said it. The children of God are not those who merely profess faith. They are those who possess faith. You have to actually have it. You can't just say it. And perseverance is a part of saving faith. Knowing you actually have it is proved by your perseverance. I I think this message really stuck with the Apostle John because he put it in one of his epistles. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. John assumes abiding perseverance is built into the cake of true and living faith. So you can't believe and then walk away and still make it to heaven one day. You need an abiding faith, a persevering faith. So that is why I'm not merely calling you to believe that Christ's words are true. These Jews believed they were true and Christ still told them, you are dead in your sins. You need to abide with a true and living faith in Christ. That's the first sign of a child of Abraham, a son of God, is abiding in Christ. The second sign is that you obey Christ. You cannot claim to be a child of God if you are not trying to obey Christ. Because it is the Son of God who sets us free, we are liberated as we saw from our spiritual bondage, which by the way, we call this the word regeneration in theological terms. Regeneration is when you are set free, your heart of stone is removed, and you're given a heart of flesh. And so when we become free, that should have consequences. Our lives shouldn't look like they used to live. That's why Paul does this ironic thing where he never talks about freedom at all. He likes to define freedom as a different kind of slavery. Paul says, in a certain sense, you're actually still a slave, but you're now a slave to your father. You once were a slave to sin, and now you're a slave to your father. He says this in Romans 6. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Sanctification being the process wherein we live holy lives. So what's Paul's point? Paul's point is saying, if you are freed from your bondage, what that actually looks like is you're now a slave to righteousness. And what's going to happen when you are a slave to righteousness? You're going to be righteous. So now we can work backwards. If you're not righteous, what does that mean? You're still a slave to sin. Sons of God are proved by their Righteousness, Or in other words, they will mimic their father. That's what Jesus says in John 8. Look at verses 39 through 44 with me. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has sought to tell you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works your father did. They said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus is, in other words, Jesus is saying, how can you claim Abraham as your father when you don't look anything like Abraham? You're not mimicking him the way Matthew mimics me. Abraham believed the truth. They believe a lie. Abraham obeyed the law of God. They're seeking to murder Jesus. That doesn't sound like Abraham, does it? Lies, murder, that's not Abraham. Who does that sound like? Jesus says, I know exactly what that sounds like. The devil, who is the father of all lies. The first person to ever tell a lie. The first creature to ever tell a lie. He is the father of lies and all he does is lie. He also loves murder because he spiritually murdered the whole human race. So Jesus is saying, let's see, who, who, who do you really belong to? Do you belong to Satan who loves murder and lies like you? Or do you belong to Abraham who loves righteousness? Jesus is saying we identify who our Father is by who we mimic. That is why we must, to be children of God, abide and obey Christ. Again, something else that left an impression on the Apostle John who says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother." In other words, the apple never falls very far from the tree. And if the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, then I need to ask you this question. To which tree are you nearest? And maybe a better way to put it is that this text is calling you to decide which father will you mimic. Will you be like Abraham? And believe the promises of God which for us have come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Will you have a faith like Abraham? A faith that abides in God's promises and proves its authenticity by works? In other words, Christ is reminding us here that being a son of the devil is not permanent. He is standing in front of children of Satan and calling them to freedom. And so if you're a person in this room who has not been yet set free, I want you to see that through His Word, Christ stands before you today just as really as He stood before the Jews in John 8. And His message to you is the exact same. Come to me, abide in me, and the truth will set you free. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus is calling the sons of Satan to come to him in repentance and faith because when you do that, you are adopted into the family of God and the Son will bring you into the house forever. What if you're already a child of God? What if you already have been counted as an offspring of Abraham? Well, my hope for you is that this text would be used by Christ's Spirit to increase your hope and your love for Jesus. May his word spur you on to perseverance and good works because you have been created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. So may we all seek to praise and love God for adopting us into his family and making us sons and daughters, for including us in the blessings of Abraham and for giving us new hearts that cause us to walk in his ways.